New Testament reading from Acts chapter 14. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, the apostles learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Iconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued proclaiming the good news. In Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all, na- all the nations to follow their own ways. Yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came there from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowds. Then they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the city. The next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. After they proclaimed the good news to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and then on to Iconium and Antioch. There they strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, it is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. And after they had appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. And after getting into a boat, Jesus crossed the sea and came to his own town. And then, and just then, some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Then some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. And he stood up and went to his home. When the crowds saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to human beings. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for your son Jesus. We give you thanks for your great love. And now we give you thanks for your word and your spirit. And we ask that you would be with us and that your grace would attend to our time now as we sit with your scriptures. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts 
be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What logic drives your life? And what kind of person are you becoming by virtue of living that way? In his book, uh, The Road to Character, author and popular New York Times columnist David Brooks discusses the difference between what he calls resume virtues on one hand and eulogy virtues on the other. This is a book I've mentioned a couple times over the years, and I keep coming back to it because I think these categories are profound and worth coming back to every now and again. But Brooks says that resume virtues are the ones you list on your resume. They're the skills that you bring to the job market and that contribute to external success. The eulogy virtues, Brooks says, are deeper. They're the virtues that get talked about at your funeral, the ones that exist at the core of your being, whether you're kind, brave, honest, faithful, what kind of relationships you formed. And what's interesting, Brooks observes, is that while almost all of us would say, if we're just to ask and reflect on what's most important, almost all of us would say that the eulogy virtues are what are really important. We also, with just a little bit of an honest assessment of our lives, would have to admit that we spend far more time thinking about and developing the other ones, right? The resume virtues. We spend years and like thousands and thousands of dollars usually going to schools that are entirely designed around cultivating knowledge and skills that are going to help us become successful in the marketplace. And some of you are in the middle of doing that right now, and that's a good thing to be doing. And we also spend a good bit of, of energy participating in a public conversation that is also entirely oriented around these things. Just think about all of the self-help books, all the nonfiction bestsellers. What are they all about? Well, how to build your career, how to lose weight, gain wealth, look better, sleep better, be a better parent, right? Whatever it is. Basically, they're all about how to develop skills that will help you do something more effectively. They're about cultivating your resume virtues, so to speak, which is fine and good. We need those. But with all that attention and energy given to figuring out how to look good and feel good and accomplish things, what's missing more often than not is a concrete discussion about how to become good, how to become a person uh, who is not just productive, but profound. How to cultivate not just ex external success, but inner depth and character a rich interior life and peace that's weighty and contagious to others, a person whose eulogy would tell the story of a life well-lived, a person who was a blessing to others and contributed to the common good. How do we cultivate those things that matter most? How do we cultivate the eulogy virtues? Well, Brooke says that our strategies for cultivating the eulogy virtues will have to be different from those by which we cultivate the resume virtues because they operate by two completely different logics. Getting back to our opening question, what logic drives your life? The resume virtues, he says, operate by a rather straightforward utilitarian logic. Effort leads to reward. Input leads to output. Play to your strengths, develop them, become more effective, become more impressive. But the eulogy virtues, he, su he suggests, operate by an inverse logic, by a moral logic, a logic of love. 
He describes it this way. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desire to get what you crave. Success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride. Failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. The eulogy virtues, we cultivate them by living into this logic of love. So what logic drives your life? This story that we just read from Acts 14 is a story of what happens when the movement of God, this whirlwind of God's love and power in the spirit, uh, comes up against these different kinds of logics that are operating in the world, right? When different logics encounter and interpret and respond to the movement of God. And we see it's a story of both friction and fruitful ministry. And one of the logics at play in the story is the logic of empire. This is the age of the Roman empire. Rome rules the world. And so there are some in this story who are very, very invested in the status quo, those with power and privilege and prestige, those who would benefit by not seeing anything changed, those who have an interpretive framework that's very operative in their minds and settled that when they encounter something new, they either pull it into what's existing as an ornament or they reject it altogether as a threat. So the logic of empire is one logic that is at play in this story, and the other is a logic of diaspora. These are categories that we've seen over the last several weeks. Willie James Jennings in his commentary on Acts suggests that these two powers, these two realities of, of empire and diaspora, the powerful Roman empire, the scattered Jewish people who are afraid for their lives and dispersed through this world, who are trying to hold on to a sense of self and identity and belonging, who are always one change away from being snuffed out and live with the fear of that reality and vulnerability. These two groups of people are main characters in the story of Acts. And what we see as the spirit goes forward, as the story continues to unfold in this episode, is we see the kind of friction that happens when God's whirlwind of love begins to encounter these different sorts of logics that are operating in the world. And so here we've got Paul and Barnabas and they're traveling and they're sent by the Spirit and they're following the Spirit into these places. It's what we would call Turkey today, Southern Turkey. They're going around the coast. They're starting to travel and they're coming to these places and they're sharing this message of what God has done in Jesus. And they're telling the story that this long awaited Messiah of Israel has come. His name is Jesus and he died on a Roman cross but God raised him up from the dead on the third day and he ascended into heaven and he has now poured out his spirit and that the days that the people of God had been waiting for for, very, for a long, 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 long time, that those days have now dawned, that God is now present to the world and to God's people in a new way and that that changes everything, that God has done something in Jesus that actually takes away the empire's greatest weapon, which is violence and death because God has overridden that through resurrection power. And God has filled his people with a spirit of resurrection power so that they can now go into the world unafraid of the opposition of empire. Because the worst that they can do, God can override. 
And so that's the story that's unfolding as these ambassadors of Jesus are traveling throughout the world and sharing this message of love and power that God has done something incredible in stepping in to the story of the world and humanity, that God has not lived toward us with a logic of power, but a logic of love as he has become Jesus Christ, the one who would suffer and die and rise again. And so they're carrying that story into the world. And what they're also carrying is this message that God has now also, through that act, made one family out of all the divided peoples of the earth. That every barrier that separates humanity from God and every barrier that separates people group from people group, that God has made peace by the blood of the cross of Jesus and torn down all the walls and is now busily at work by the Spirit gathering all in together to be one family, one team, one body. And so the apostles are carrying this message of unity and love, of liberation into the world, and it's encountering the logic of empire that goes, wait, that sounds disruptive to the status quo. And it's encountering the logic of diaspora, which goes, wait, that sounds like it's threatening our identity markers and the things that we cling to for security and sense of self. And both the empire and those experiencing diaspora are resisting this message because it's calling forth from them participation in this new thing that God is doing. And so whether it's those who hold power or those who live in fear, they're resisting it. And what's so fascinating here is that the religious people who are opposing this movement of love, their response is actually to reach out and try to form a political alliance with the very people that they're refusing to, uh, to participate with in religious fellowship. So the news that they're resisting, right, is that God has brought the Jewish and non-Jewish people together in one family. And so those who are dispersed throughout the empire, the Jewish people, the religious people, they are experiencing that as threatening because the Jewish identity is very important to preserve to them, right? This is how they're surviving in this world of, of Roman oppression. So to bring together all the peoples into one family feels like a threat to them. So what do they do? They go out and form an alliance with the people they don't want to be unified with to resist this thing that's calling forth from them unity. It's a fascinating dynamic, and it's still very much at play today as you see the way a fearful religious group of people, fearful church, right, will retreat into political alliances to try to stabilize a sense of self rather than moving forward courageously according to a logic of love. So what happens when these disciples who are filled with the Spirit move forward into the world, animated by this whirlwind of love and living according to a different logic? They become people of profound courage. And they become incredibly powerful healers. They become vessels of God's healing, vessels of God's peacemaking, vessels of justice and care. They strengthen the souls of the disciples. They speak truth to power. They become a balm in the world. And the story of Acts is really a story of people getting caught up in this movement of God and carrying it out into the world and experiencing what happens in this tension, right, of bearing a message that is the good news the world craves. Yet, it's good news the world craves that not everyone is ready and willing to receive. And so they go forth and they're sharing their message. And the first response is these 
Greco-Roman people, right? This Hellenized group of people. They're Greek speakers. They worship, they worship the Greek pantheon of gods. They interpret what's happening through their own grid. They're gods, right? They're like, this must be Zeus and Hermes coming to pay us a visit. Any Percy Jackson fans? I've gotten to know Zeus and Hermes all over again through my daughter's uh, enthusiasm of reading the Percy Jackson books. But maybe some of you enjoyed Greek mythology and past or present eras of your education. That, those were their real gods. So this is the real part of the world, right? Where this is the way that they lived. It was the, the pagan Greco-Roman world and, and this is how they lived spiritually in the world. And so as they're interpreting things that are beyond what looks natural and normal to them, they're interpreting it through their grid and they're saying, well, this must be these guys. The talkative one's Hermes, Paul, right? The other one is Zeus, we suppose. And so they start to try to worship them as gods and then Paul and Barnabas see what they're doing. They're going, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding us. Let us reframe that for you. And they begin to share the story of what God has done in Christ. And they also begin to bear witness to how all the good things that they can look at from their own culture, all the good things that they can look at from their own experience in the world are evidences of the goodness of God for them. These are actually gifts from the living God. These are actually gifts from the Father of Jesus Christ. That the good things that they've experienced in their world are actually bearing witness to the reality of the good creator who is alive and well and for them and now with them in a new way. And so you see them showing up in this world courageously offering to help and winsomely reframing when necessary the misunderstanding of the message that they carry. But there's more than a response of just misunderstanding. Others begin to experience this as a threat and resort to violence. And what we see here is Paul actually becoming the victim of the same kind of violence that he used to inflict on others in a previous stage of his religious life and career. You see, Paul used to be a fear mongerer before this. There was a day before this when he was actually the one who would oversee the throwing of stones who would sanction religious violence, who would go out and hunt the kind of people who were getting it wrong and try to corral them and bring them back to trial. Paul was like a precursor of an internet troll in a, in a non-digital world, yet with, with rocks, right, armed. Yet here he becomes the victim who receives the blows. He becomes the one stoned. And they stone him and they believe that he's dead and they drag him out of the city and they leave him for dead. And he's then surrounded by the disciples. We don't really see too much of what happens there. Did they pray for him? Did they lay hands on him? Did they attend to him? Or did he just get better? But the people who stoned him thought he was dead and so they left him there. But Paul recovered and where did he go? Right back in. <laughs> he went right back into the place where they stoned him. And when he did, it says he strengthened the souls and encouraged the disciples. He moved forward in courage and faith, not with violence, but with love. And when he inhabited that kind of story, when he inhabited that kind of a life of faith where violence has no power over him because he, he, he lives a resurrection life that cannot be ended by death. And he goes with a kind of courage that is animated by a spirit who raises even the dead. He's able to go into these places as an agent of love and courage. As you think about the difficult places in your own life, difficult people, places where you have an opportunity to be a bearer of love and peace, but that are hard, 
or conversations that you could have at your workplace or in your families or in some of your more fraught relationships with neighbors perhaps. And you think about how if you were to engage, you might be able to help. But if you were to engage, you also might suffer the pain of friction, right? What would it look like to be animated not by a logic of conflict avoidance and self-protection, but by a logic of love? Where you go in not as a competitor, not as a self-protector, but as one whose job is to love your neighbor. And that you recognize that God gives you every grace and every gift you need to go into those spaces because you inhabit a story, you inhabit a life in which God raises the dead and will raise you. The prisoner's dilemma is a real thing, right? We're all afraid to be the one who goes first because if we all went there together, it would work. But if only I go and you don't, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get hurt and you'll all be fine, right? And this is just a, real, this is a reality that paralyzes us in our moments of opportunities to love, especially when it comes to crossing difficult barriers. But this is where I think Paul, being filled with the Spirit, recognizes that the thing that overrides that prisoner's dilemma is recognizing that God has chosen to go first. The good news of Jesus is that God has chosen to relate to you and to me, not out of a logic of power and control, but out of a logic of love. God has come near to you in Jesus. He has come near to me in Jesus. He has embraced us as humanity. He has embraced his wayward world with grace. He's gone first and he got hammered for it. We did that, but God raised him up. God unleashed this love an irreversible love and power into the world through him. And this risen and ascended, previously crucified Jesus takes his throne, receives the spirit, pours it out on us and says, now you go and do likewise. As I have loved you, so love one another. Carry into the world this message of love. Be the peacemakers who go with reckless abandon into the places of conflict as those who are shored up and secured, not by your own self-preservation and strength, but by my faithful care. I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a story where we see what it looks like when people take that seriously and start anchoring their lives in the love of God and the power of the Spirit and move forward in that faith, hope, and love that renews the world. And I think our invitation today as Resurrection Philadelphia or as individuals who are here is to just simply sit with this question, what logic drives your life? We do that at our confession of sin. All the other logics that we live by my pride, my logic of self-promotion, my, my logic of image management, my logic of self-soothing, of conflict avoidance. We operate by all kinds of different things and we say, God, I've lived away from you. This is who I am. And we receive the reality that God lives toward us in love in that very moment and we say, change me, renew me make me more like Jesus and unleash me into the world and freedom and power to live out that kind of love in the world the way Jesus did. That's what we do together as a community, is we come together to be changed. 
We come together to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus, to be renewed in the spirit so that we can actually live into the world in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, in in our classes. For those of you who are students, transformed, reoriented, reanimated by the spirit of God, this whirlwind of love who leads us by living, leads us into living by a very different logic than all the ones that we're taught to live by, even the ones we invest in and practice. We're remade into the likeness of Jesus so that we can live like him in the world. My hope and my prayer for us as a community is that that is what would be true of us this fall. And as we gather in community groups and kick those off this fall, my prayer is that those spaces would be transformative spaces. And as our kids are off in their classes and doing their thing and hearing the stories of Jesus, my prayer is that the teachers and the kids involved would be experiencing the presence of God and hearing the story of Jesus in such a way that we all catch a glimpse of a vision of a world made right and a means to that end that are the way of Jesus and not the way of fearful self-preservation or powerful protection of the status quo, but Christ-like, cross-shaped, self-sacrificial love, which is the way of Jesus. It is the way of the Spirit. And ironically, it is the way of life. Living this way is how we will live a life that at the end of it, the stories that people tell of us will be stories that sound like Jesus. Stories of how we invested our lives and made a difference that counts. Not just that we were impressive, but that we were healers and peacemakers, truth tellers, good listeners, humble and honest, helpful, that our lives made a difference. You want that, right? I want that. We crave that. We want to matter. Well, God leads us in that way. Jesus has pioneered that way. Let us follow him and may God give us grace that it would be so. Would you pray with me? Living God, gracious God, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray that you would make us like him by the power of your spirit through this logic of love and send us forth from here to be ambassadors of your kingdom and vessels of your gracious love and presence. We pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.